Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country that highlight what we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series that focuses on public health advocacy. Hey, public healthers, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. My name is Deborah Thompson. I'm a public health advocate, and for eight years, I was the point of contact for legislators at Iowa State Health Department. These days, I spend my time as an advocacy consultant and as a volunteer for the Iowa Public Health Association's Advocacy Committee with my dear friend, Hannah Schultz. Hannah is the producer for this podcast series, and I'm your host. This is the final installment of four episodes about advocacy. In this series, we'll explore the motivations public healthers all over the Midwest feel about advocating for their craft. They'll give us advice on how to be successful, and they'll ask that you consider finding your voice to aid in our collective efforts to promote and improve the health of the heartland. Thanks for listening. Today, we're talking about the importance of coalitions. In public policy, a coalition can develop a coordinated response to an issue, increase the efficiency of service delivery, pool community resources, create and launch community-wide initiatives, build and wield political clout to influence policy, and work effectively toward long-term social change. Our guests today are Linda Rollo, Vice President of Aligned. Aligned is a nonprofit, nonpartisan coalition of business leaders committed to improving education in Kansas and Missouri. We'll also be speaking with Dr. Nafisa Cisse Ebonye, who is the administrator for Black Hawk County Public Health in Iowa, and the Reverend Dr. Mary Robinson, who's a long serving member and the current chair of the local Board of Health in Black Hawk County. We'll start off today's episode talking with Linda. Hi, I'm Linda Rollo. I work for Align. We're a nonprofit organization that is made up of business leaders who are interested in improving education outcomes for students so that they can enter the workforce ready to go. Um, we're based out of Kansas City and we work um, on basically state level policymaking in Missouri and Kansas. Linda is a highly successful advocate. She breaks it down in this next part. Know the policy process so you can use it to create change. Understand the politics surrounding your ask. Pool your resources. Find like-minded people and organizations because coalitions are all about a power in numbers approach. Many people and organizations singing to the same tune to make a beautiful chorus calling for change. Linda also gives a helpful advocacy survival tip. Do not focus on the larger picture without celebrating the small steps to getting there. It's really about being strategic. I mean, first you have a goal, whatever it is you're trying to change, and then um, then really setting the strategy about how to go about doing that. And so um, one of the things that um, you can do is leverage resources of associations, councils, and other advocates that share your values. Um, you have to learn the language of politics, policymaking, and lawmaking. And then really like, this is the most important thing. It's just understanding what is politically feasible and also taking the time to celebrate incremental wins. I think a lot of advocates get um, really fixed on a big goal, like for example, Medicaid expansion. And that is a Herculanean task. And like, you might wanna go get it one year and, and you'll fail. And so you've got to like figure out how to, celebrate those incremental wins. 
So we have an organization in Missouri called Kids Win Missouri. And it's really open to anyone that has children at the center of their policy. And so we represent the business community. So we come in as, you know, that branch, but we have hospitals in our coalition. We have um, after school programs. We have like nurses and parents as teachers and early childhood providers. So it's, it's really even like uh, juvenile justice type things, like anything that touches kids. And so we have built a really broad coalition and it, it's gotten so big now that we have like broken off into work groups. And so we've got like the, there's the like safety and security work group. There's like youth development work group early childhood education work group. And so these groups get together and then they set the, the agenda of like, what are the priorities that we're going to go after in the next year? And just the reason why they, we've been so successful is because when we say we're kids win Missouri, I mean, there's a depth there. And then everybody in the coalition brings talents to the table. Like one of my, um, things that I can bring is that I've developed really good relationships with members of the press. So I can use those relationships if we want to get a story out and time it properly. Um, others have great relationships with healthcare coalition. Um, others have great relationships with the network of early or childcare providers across the state. And so we can all like, it's basically, you know, we just are a team and we, we leverage our talents. And so having a coalition is really just having an arsenal of so many skills and intellect and talent that when it's time to like make a change, we all just kind of like, you know, it's like a beehive we jump on and then we just buzz through and, and get it done. And so I think coalitions um, are the most important thing you can do in, in advocacy. Linda's decades of success in advancing policy has made her really savvy. My takeaway here was to think of coalition members like a cast of characters in a scripted play. We've all seen Hamilton, right? Each player has a strength, a key relationship, or a skill, and when it's time to tap that gift, they can step up and shine. I think it's just um, ability to react strategically at the right time to influence policy and to be able to bring in a multitude of actors and to kind of leverage all of the, the connections we have, the resources, um, the knowledge, and to, to bring that in and then to actually apply pressure where it needs to be applied and then obviously change policy. Linda continues to share her insight by explaining how to be sure your cast of characters are filled with the right kinds of actors. In other words, there are a couple of things to consider as you assemble your coalition's membership to give it strength. She ends this part with another good tip. Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Looking at like, who are the winners and losers? You know, that's a big thing in policy making. Someone wins, someone loses. Hopefully, you know, we wish that everyone would win, right? Um, but figuring out who's going to benefit the most from that policy change and then figuring out who those folks are and then inviting them into your coalition. Uh, I will give you an example of something I worked on um, a few years ago. Um, 
there was an effort in Missouri to raise, raise the age of adult prosecution. So in Missouri, 17 year olds were being prosecuted as adults. And we wanted to raise that to 18. And there were lots of reasons. It's really not safe, obviously, for a 17 year old to be put in the adult you know, system. And we had to bring in like the counties who had opposed it for years and years and years because it was going to put an unfunded mandate on them if they started to have an increased caseload at the county level of more juvenile offenders and they didn't have the resources to like take care of them the proper way. And then there was the Juvenile Justice Association that, you know, they were kind of against the county. And so we brought everybody into one room and we basically, you know, I always use this analogy. It reminds me of like Apollo 13 when they dump all the like parts on the table and they're like, this is what you have to work with. Figure it out. You've got to get these guys back from space. And so we sat in this room and I wouldn't let them leave until everybody kind of came up with like, what can we live with? And it was the big, big problem. And you're going to find this in most policy. It's about the money. There was no money to fund this policy change. And so we worked through with, with everyone in the room and kind of came up with a solution. So I think it's even getting, getting the people that may not, you know, like that may have opposed you in the past and just sitting them down and like figuring out what's workable. And so we had to come up with like a new revenue stream. And so we just kind of like went through every possible thing. Like, could you raise taxes? Could you assess fees? Like, what could you do? And we really needed like, uh, like some seed money to get into an account so that it could kind of accumulate and then have enough money at least to offset the initial costs. And then we figured like over time, it kind of would all work out. And so we ended up coming up with like a court fee on like a dollar court fee on like civil cases at the city level. And then um, some other fee, I can't think of the top of my head what it was, but we kind of were just very like, not to say nickel and dime, but we just picked little pockets where there was a little opportunity for a a fee to come together. And then we knew like we needed a few years for this to come to, to fund. And while that wasn't like we wanted that change today and get it done, it was a good compromise because if we had waited for perfect, you know, we would never have gotten there and we'd still be talking about where are we going to get this money? And let's say we're now in year three where we've pretty much accumulated the funds that we need. If we had still been like stuck, we would be maybe now three years later going, okay, maybe we need to like incrementally assess these fees. And, and now we've already arrived at the solution. So you've got to like really be willing to compromise and maybe not, you know, let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Over time, you'll build stronger and stronger relationships with different members of your coalition. We've talked about the importance of relationship building several times over the course of this advocacy series. Why? because relationships make the world go round. Getting to know the members of your coalition means getting to know what they're good at. You've experienced their strengths and weaknesses, and so you know when to give them their solo, and even when to maybe just keep them behind the scenes. I know, listeners, I am really leaning into this play metaphor. Don't hate me. Just keep listening to Linda. I think that's what's really exciting about um, coalitions is because you feel really empowered when you have built something that um, can sustain over time, And it's just kind of there ready when you need it. So I think we've just done it naturally. We kind of know who 
who our go-to people are on, on different things. Um, I have a friend who leads uh, an organization and he is not a salesman type of a personality. He's not somebody I would bring down to like have the first meeting with a legislator, but he has so much knowledge and he's very well respected. And because of the years and years of work that he's done in the legislature, he's trusted. So like I would bring him in like after maybe the third meeting when you really want to get into the weeds and explain the policy when you've already built that relationship. And it's not about like those first impressions and then, you know, use those kinds of people strategically at that time. So it's kind of like, who, who are your great faces? Who are the folks that might have a little bit of charisma that, you know, can go out initially and get the doors opened. And then you just like bring in the experts afterwards, instead of like bringing an expert in at that first meeting when they're going to throw all those facts up and just kind of like, someone's going to be like, yeah, whatever. I appreciate so much the vulnerability Linda shares in her story about her favorite loss. Yep. That's what I said. Her favorite loss. Here's more. I would say like one of my biggest failures in life was probably like one of the best successes for me personally, just from the things that I learned and the scars that I got. So we, um, we wanted to raise the tobacco tax in Missouri. It's the lowest in the nation. And we wanted to use those funds to invest in early childhood health and education. And so we worked for like four years to pull, build a group. And we, um, we had it, like we met with every person we could think of that would be either for or against it. We had hundreds of meetings and we wanted to get buy-in from everybody. And so we, we did like community conversations across the state where we went out and talked to local leaders and got their perspectives, which really helped shape the policy. Like we were gonna do um, a policy where all the funds would be distributed by county based on population. And then we were gonna let like the county level government figure out how they wanted to invest it. And like the first thing when we went to talk to counties and they were like, people were like, well, one, we don't trust our county people Two, the counties didn't want to have to deal with that. And so we had to kind of go back to the, the drawing board and figure out something different. Um, but we built this amazing coalition. And then we ended up having a funding issue because we needed to collect signatures. It's very expensive. So we partnered with Big Tobacco, which sounds horrible. But we have like a weird thing in Missouri where there's like two tobacco markets and they sort of compete. So we were trying to like change the policy so there wouldn't be this like um, small tobacco, like cheap cigarette market and just make all cigarettes sort of like this, have to play by the same rules. And so we, so Big Tobacco wanted that. So we partnered with um, RJ Reynolds. We had learned from past attempts, like that the pro-life community would like come out and say, you're going to use this money for abortions. And so we thought, well, we will go partner up with the right to life community and say, we're going to put protections in there. So it will be ironclad that none of this money will go to fund abortions. And so we got them on board. Well, then what we did with all of that is we really ticked off the scientific community because then they thought we were messing with like embryonic stem cell and it just got out of control. And then bit by bit, like the big science, I called it big science, but that was just me being snarky. But um, <laughs> what they did is they hired lobbyists who then looked at our coalition. They literally went on our website and they started calling them bit by bit and pressuring them and getting them to like, 
say, we're not supporting this anymore. And so um, it all disintegrated and we had, you know, we had our true believers that stayed with us when they understood that this language was just prophylactic. It wasn't going to really affect science. It wasn't going to do anything bad. It was just basically saying like this pot of money can't be spent on abortions and embryonic stem cell. Um, so we did have the ones that stayed with us, but we went from like 58% support um, in our polling to election day, only getting 40% of the vote. So it just imploded. And I will tell you like pretty much everybody was against us by that point. And when we failed, like in November, I had to go back to the Capitol, you know, to do my regular job starting in January. And the, all the people that the lobbyists that like, you know, assassinated our effort were in the building, people that, you know, were against me were in there. And it was just like, I'd walk around feeling like I had a big loser sign over my head. And I was just like really dejected and embarrassed and, but, you know, I had to keep doing my job. And I went up to one of the guys who was against us from the small tobacco coalition. And he said, you know, you did an amazing job. He's like, you do have, you have nothing to be ashamed of and you better hold your head up high. You're a wonderful person. And I don't want to see you sad anymore. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to get through this, you know? And I think at that point you kind of realize like, it is a bit of a game and people are, you know, hired to fight for their causes and it's not personal. And I was taking everything really personally. And so I think in advocacy, you've got to like be able to, at the end of the day, like be confident in that you're doing your best job and things just might not go your way, but don't take it personally. And remember like these relationships that you had maybe with somebody that opposed you, you know, may end up being on your side a little later. Linda just made a great point that someone you oppose in one advocacy campaign may be on your side on the next one. This is also true of lawmakers. Conservative lawmakers may support progressive policy on occasion, and liberal lawmakers are often quite conservative on some issues. Be open-minded and listen to what someone is saying. I mean, really listen without trying to find a place to judge. It'll be refreshing to hear that more often than not, they care about the same issues impacting their community that you do. With the power of shared purpose, you'll work out the kinks. I think like in our state, we have like, we call them the coasts, you know, Kansas City and St. Louis where they're more liberal and then the middle is more conservative. And sometimes in St. Louis, they get really dejected about like the, the conservatives, they don't see eye to eye. And so they kind of disparage them a lot. And I'm always like, you guys need to chill and understand that like there are conservative lawmakers that share some of your same values. They care about education, they care about child safety. You know, if you're constantly like saying how terrible they are, then they're not gonna wanna work with you. And so it's hard though, because they're just so different on, you know, their values are so different, but you know, that's the thing like too with Medicaid expansion, which was really genius strategy is to be able to like show rural lawmakers like the impact on hospital closures to their community and why, you know, we needed to expand Medicaid in our state, like really kind of identified their pain points, even though they didn't want like a, you know, more government in healthcare, but when they realized like, you know, it's hurting my community, you know, the person next door might not be able to get healthcare because of it. It does help to like change their perspective. So you just got to constantly, you know, make it relatable to everybody.
If not you, then who? Linda explains that one of the most important functions of a network of advocates in a coalition is to simply monitor an issue. It's not always about pushing for change. Sometimes it's more important to protect the status quo. Coalitions also play an important role in keeping bad things from happening. And as Linda puts it, protect the hen house because the fox is always looking for an opportunity to pounce. We, in Missouri, there was a group called like Partnership for Children and they were the child advocate in the, in the building and they were around and then they lost funding and they went away. And then there was like a year where there was there were no child advocates in the in the building. And in that year, a legislator um, passed a law that banned quality rating systems for early care and education. So made it illegal to rate quality for childcare centers. Wow. And that caused us to not be eligible to win like a national grant. You know, we it it closed a lot of doors on federal funding opportunities. So then the next year. After uh, we got a, the kids win, well, they changed their name, but so the, it was called the Missouri Children's Leadership Council. So they came back that next year and then started putting the pieces back together. And now we've been able to, like we worked with my group and, and kids win. We worked to get that language, that ban quality out of statute and established like a a pilot project for our quality rating system. And then like, then we, we went around and told lawmakers, we're like, that if you put this link, if you get rid of this language and put in this pilot, then we're gonna be much more competitive when we go for federal grants. Well, then we got that done. And then like the next year, there was this big preschool development grant opportunity and Missouri won it. And um, we were able to go back to the legislators and say, thank you, because of your work, we now are going to have $33 million coming into our state over the next three years for early care and education, quality improvement, and all of that. And I love to tell that story because it the bad thing happened the one year there weren't advocates in the building. And so sometimes you don't always get the things that you want done, but a lot of bad things can happen. So you've got to have a presence all the time. Somebody like watching, you know, the hen house to make sure the fox doesn't come in and, and steal the chickens. And so it, that to me is like the number one, like reason why you've got to have a coalition. So you can make sure that your, you know, your children or whatever it is that you're advocating for are protected, even, you know, in the years that nothing gets done, at least nothing bad gets done. Thank you, Linda Rallo for making the benefits of a coalition crystal clear. A strong coalition can move mountains. Now we're going to turn our attention to Blackhawk County, Iowa, to talk with Dr. Nafisa Cisse Ebonye and the Reverend Dr. Mary Robinson about their experiences with coalitions. A few years ago, Blackhawk County was named the worst place in America to be Black. This report will come up in the conversation as a catalyzing moment for the health department and the community. We start with Reverend Mary. Just be ready to be inspired. That's really all I need to say. Well, I am uh, Reverend Dr. Mary Robinson. I am currently a pastor of All Nations Community Church. Um, I'm also um, a chaplain, uh, a part-time chaplain at uh, Tyson Foods. But probably the most important thing, of course, is the church. And then the next uh, 
thing is really the community activism. It has been a part of my life. Uh, I, I remember even as a child laying up in my bed, looking at the moon, and then I would be somehow thinking about people who were in trouble or thinking about uh, ways to help people get out of trouble. And, and so you really don't know your calling uh, because it didn't feel like a calling. It just felt like I was night dreaming or daydreaming. And, and then as things evolved, it seemed like you would notice as a child um, the difference. You would notice when the teachers treated you different. Uh, you would notice when people looked at you different. And uh, it, it had a lasting impact upon you. And then as you become an adult and you see your children going through some of the same things that you went through. And it's like, when is enough enough? And so what drove me uh, into really becoming a lot more vocal, and the most amazing thing is that no matter where I've been, when I was at work or college, we had to organize. When I was at the law school, we had to organize. When I was at a seminary, we had to deal with issues. It never, ever stopped. And so I was very active in the, um, I can't say the civil rights movement because we've had so many, but um, very active in the civil rights movement of the late 60s and 70s here in, uh, I mean, late 60s, early 70s um, here in Waterloo. And I learned the extent to which uh, law enforcement, the extent to which society, the extent to which those who are privileged, the, the extent to which they will go to keep our voices not heard, our voices silent. And I became familiar with Zora Neale Hurston, and she said, if you keep quiet or silent about your pain, they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. And I thought, I can't keep silent anymore because I don't want anybody to say I enjoy so many of the injustices that you have to go through daily um, if you are a person of color. And so I, as I came in, into the ministry, I, I, I became driven uh, by not just the giants, Dr. Nafisa is correct. We stand on the shoulders of so many giants, too numerous to name. And even those not just nationally known, but those right here in Waterloo that we never mentioned their names. But then I thought about like with Dr. Martin um, Luther King, right from scripture, where it, it, the scripture says that God has showed us what is good. And and what does he require? And that is to um, love, just, to do justice and to love mercy in addition to walking with him. And, and then I, I thought about the model of Jesus and um, the, that he came to be a servant, that he came to lift people, to make them better than what they were. 
And so that has, has always driven me. But the other thing that probably drives me the most is that no parent likes to see their children hurt. And you would do anything to take that pain of your child. And when I saw my children going through some of the same things that I had gone through in the school systems and, and with jobs and whatever, then enough is enough. And so I was president of the state NAACP for over 10 years. I've been uh, served two terms on the State Board of Education. It's just the number of things I've helped put in place the um, well, help write the legislation for the State Commission on the Status of Blacks. It's just been so many things. And so I decided I was tired and I needed a rest. So I pulled back. And then the report came out, the 24-7 report came out a few years ago showing that we were number 10 as the worst place to be in America. And I thought, no, nah, that can't be. That, that is just, that cannot be. Uh, somebody is making a mistake. And I remember I was sitting at a board of education, a board of health meeting. And I was thinking about that. And I thought, I thought about, as I looked around the department and I thought about the staff and I thought about um, just there I was sitting on a board that we weren't really dealing some of the issues. And I thought, could that report really be true? And then three years later, it came out that we had moved from number 10, Des Moines had been number nine, but we had moved from number 10 to number one. And then it hit me, wait a minute, I can't retire. I wanna retire, I wanna travel. I wanted to go back to Israel. I want to go back to Maui. I, I want to go back uh, to Italy. I, I know this is my time. To I'm old enough now. I need to really, really have fun stuff to do. But I didn't see anybody addressing that report. And I thought, wait, wait, we uh, nothing. And and I kept saying to the Lord, Lord, nobody is saying anything about this report and then he said well you're somebody and I thought no I don't want to do this I really seriously did not want to start addressing the issues again I was tired I really was tired and um so but I did and uh I went before the city council uh, to talk about the issues in that report and then the rest is kind of history. I've gotten back involved again uh, in, a, in a big way. I told you guys, Reverend Mary is a role model in public service. But what I appreciated most in what she just said is her candidness about her feeling of burden. I feel this way too sometimes. I wonder if you guys do too. Like, why do I have to be the one to care so much? Why do I have to notice what's wrong and feel so compelled to help? I also want to go to Hawaii too, and maybe even with Reverend Mary if she'd have me. 
That's why we're the strongest advocates, though, listeners. Our passion carries us and fuels us. And at times, this is despite us, especially when we feel so exhausted by it. But that's the dual nature of the calling to serve. So really, thank you for your service, public healthers, sincerely. In this next part, Reverend Mary explains how her calling to serve led her to her membership and leadership in the, on the Black Hawk County Board of Health and how rewarding that journey has been. I'm, I'm not even sure now who asked me to if I would be interested. It had to be someone who was on the Board of Supervisors at that time because they appoint and um, had not really been involved uh, with the Board of Health. We had been involved with a lot of issues with health disparities, that's for sure. And uh, and so I said, well, yeah, I will consider it. And I was interviewed. And, and so I, I went on and I, I think I chaired. I served two terms as chair, or at least for sure, another term before this one. Um, and but it, it spoke to my passion for making sure that uh, there was quality health care uh, that I was not seeing. And as the other thing that drove me was that when I looked at every single major chronic disease that we have, it seemed like uh, that people of color were always at the top of that list. And that concerned me. Uh, uh, we didn't really, seriously, we knew that there was a Board of Health, but it wasn't something that sort of played into our everyday kind of thinking like it, like it is today. Uh, it was like, well, that's just bureaucracy. That's just one of those agencies without really thinking that, no, that's an agency that's supposed to be serving everyone in the county. And it was... It was good. I mean, the people were awesome. Don't get me wrong. But there was not the connection that needed to be to our community. And so I was excited about being able to uh, help make that connection. So Reverend Mary has lived in Black Hawk County her whole life. But Dr. Abonier traveled quite a ways to get here. Of all the places to wind up, man, is Black Hawk County lucky to get to claim her. What I love about this next part is how Nafisa connects her origin and upbringing to her work in public health and how she perceives her role as a public healther in her community. It's something to think about. Where did your public health roots grow from and how do they inform the perspective you bring to your role? Hi, I'm Dr. Nafisa Fisay and the public health director for Black Hawk County. I'm originally from West Africa, from Niger, and um, one of the things that I think people find fascinating is and I'm starting now to recognize that that was this is an important piece of my journey um, is, is the fact that I came to the US in 1989 and I was uh, six years old, I believe. Um, and I um, landed um, in JFK but my mom was living in Illinois. So my, my US story started in the Midwest. But it was, um, it was the journey that I took alone. I will never forget the day where my great aunt um, just woke me up and put me on a plane and said, you are heading um, uh, to, to go see your mother. And so 
got on the plane and crossed the um, Atlantic Ocean. Um, I, I had, I mean, I was, it was just, um, you know, um, I'm a woman of faith. So um, God took care of me on this journey. Um, I didn't speak the language. I remember sitting next to a stranger, didn't know how to cut my bread. Um, but it was such a, a an intense journey that I remember it um, um, pretty clear. And I, I landed JFK and I look around and off. I just see my mom's um, open arms just screaming, Nafisa. And so I just run to her. Um, and so from that on, we got on the bus because she was a student um, and didn't have enough money for um, the plane ride to Illinois. So she got on the bus and um, headed to um, Illinois. Um, my school, um, my elementary school um, is in Springfield, um, Illinois. Um, and it was the Martin Luther King Elementary School. Um, and it was uh, a school that was very, very diverse. Um, but it was right next to the campus where um, my mom studied at University of Illinois. Um, so it was just, um, it, it just, that's where I think my, my, my journey really started. Um, but my, my parents um, very early on instilled in me um, the, the importance of social justice, the importance of thinking about your neighbor, your brother, your sister. And so one of the things that my mother ensured in, is really this um, understanding that um, African history is African-American history. African-American history is African history. And so she would take me um, to, you know, um, Black beauty salons for friends who are African-Americans. Um, I... Um, I, I, I didn't realize until now later that, um, you know, um, we would navigate um, low-income neighborhoods and housing. That's where I was um, baby, with babysitters. Um, that's where I learned to double dutch. Um, so really, I, I mean, it was, I didn't know what my mother was, was doing, um, but um, there was a deep connection and um, she would, we would always do that in, in um, when we moved to other places, that the first thing my mother um, did was to find the African-American community, regardless of where we were. Um, and that was a way for her to also connect us with our culture, our heritage, and just um, provide us a sense of belonging. Um, so when I read um, books on equity, I just I just think about my upbringing and I say, you know, um, equity and advocacy is it's really a value base. You know, it's something that you have to value within yourself, not not something that you learn and you just like it's not like a curriculum. It's something you have to value. And so um, so I think um my journey in terms of my education was always being in a field in which I can serve. Um, I, I believe that um, advocacy is, is about being a service, a servant leadership, you know, um, as the health department, there's, um, you know, a, a lot of times in public health, you know, we've, you know, some of the damages that we've done is 
us always making assumptions we know what's best for people, even in programming, instead of saying that um, we, we are here to support, we are here um, to be a partner, we are here to actually be informed, right? Um, and so um, I, I, I don't believe in, in just um, making assumptions about us being experts. It's those that are um, in need of, of the services that are actually the experts because they can tell us what will work and what will not work. Um, and so as a health department, I think it's public health's responsibility to, to, to really um, be very clear about these issues. I think in the past we have, we've, we've kind of been that invisible field and now I'm pushing and saying, no, I don't even, I don't like to hear that statement anymore because we shouldn't be that invisible field. Public health has a responsibility because we know that um, the, this, um, the, the health disparities are due to the social um, and economic conditions of people. Those are the root causes of the problem. And public health has a role and public health needs to acknowledge also the role that they play um, in, in, in creating harm as well. And so I think that, um, you know, there, there's, there's, it's not just about moving forward, but it's also public health saying, wait a minute, you know, we, we've done this in the past, um, you know, this did not work and here's why it didn't work. And here's the reason why we have to figure out how to um, be more strategic. When you're a public facing presence in the community, how important is it to be authentic? Experts on leadership will tell you that authenticity is critical to gaining buy-in that advances your goals. As an expert in advocacy, I will also tell you that authenticity is critical to advancing your goals. Shedding your armor, accepting you for you, strengths and weaknesses alike, is what will make your passion attractive to others. They will follow you because they trust that you're trying to do right by your community, even when you have setbacks and even when you make mistakes. Trust yourself first and then trust Dr. Bunye and I on this point. The most important thing is being authentic. And I try my best to present myself in the most authentic matter. Like, um, and so I think as a new leader, I, I, the Board of Health has charged me with, with the restructuring, with accreditation. And so the first couple of years were very difficult um, because community leaders' understanding of public health was the direct services oriented. What we were known for was the school nursing program. And so having to be placed in a role where they're seeing um, layoffs occurring um, and we, we, we no longer are holding those school nursing contracts. One of the um, conversations was, well, we, we were taught that this is public health, you know, and I'm here saying, wait, well, public health is a, a, a bit different. It's, it's not just school nursing. We do more than that, right? And so I think there was a lot of suspicion at first um, about me and what my plans were for the division for the health department. Um, but, you know, you, I think it's important as a leader to not go in with this idea of, um, you know, forcing that um, buy-in, right? You have to build buy-in. You have to allow people to go through the journey to see that transformation. And, and for us, 
you know, it was step by step. People were starting to um, to see that. And and actually, it didn't take me. It was more community leaders informing each other. Right. And so um, I think that that really helped where it wasn't the newcomer trying to sell this new vision or idea. It was community um, leaders that started to see where um, the health department where was going, where like, aha. So when they were running into people that had a negative um, perception, they were informing those individuals. And I, I some of the feedback they were sharing with me with, was, they would say, you have to see community leaders that are willing to understand your vision and let them do the education. That if you charge yourself of always being the one to lead, there's so many opportunities for leadership. You know, um, um, I think it, it's more effective when people um, that already have those built um, in relationships. For me, as a public health director, I have to be in the community. I have to be able to um, participate um, in community events and. You know, if community members have an issue, I have to be available. Um, that is, I think that is my responsibility. Um, and so very often programming staff have the interaction, but as a public health director, I want the community to always know I'm a phone call away. I think that that's, that's one of the things that's um, really important um, in terms of advocacy, because now when you look at how um, where the things are changing, it's really grassroots movements that are going to change the system. It's it's building from underneath that's that's going to change the system, not not from a top down approach. No, it's 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 really and so I like to see grassroots organizations and what they're doing, and I think public health's responsibility is to give them the data, is to give them. Um, you know, the resources um, to help them also move the needle forward. So oftentimes equity work becomes, it, it is actually, it, it is personal, but there's finger pointing that, that happens. Or, um, you know, I say this, members of the white community don't say much, you know. And so we wanted to have an approach where everybody is engaged, everybody sees themselves within the system as part of the solution. We sat down and we really built the coalition based on the social determinants of, of, of health. And so we went through that whole list and say, and then we kept asking ourselves, who's missing, who's missing, who's missing? So the church members, I mean, the local public health system, like elected officials, um, school administrators, K through 12, the higher ed, um, economic development. I mean, we really wanted to represent the social determinants of health. And one of the things with bringing people at the table, I've realized through coalition building is that, you know, Eileen provided me with the latitude to have coffee with people. So she was managing the day-to-day -day operations because emails isn't good enough for relationship building. Never make assumptions that, oh, I'm gonna send this email and then, you know, people are gonna RSVP. Why would they? You know, what, what is it in for them, right? And so 
Um, we would, you know, um, spend, I would do um, daily check-ins to see how many people would RSVP. I've learned that some people prefer a phone call. I've learned that some people prefer text. I've learned that some people need that face-to-face -face coffee, 30-minute lunch, 30-minute face-to-face talk. And so I did all those things. I said, you know, I, I said, you know, what, what's the best method of communication? Oh, let's have lunch. Okay, wait. I'm, I head there, you know. Okay, oh, just send me a text. Talk, text me. Like, when is it? What's okay? Texting, you know. Let's have a phone conversation. Okay, you know. And so, it's people have different methods of converse of communication. And so, when you want to bring others along, you have to respect that. And so, um, so that's how we were able. Um, by the time it was. Um, and we had a very short window. I remember I was so nervous. I was like, oh my God, nobody's gonna show up. And we sent 50 invitations and 47 people showed up. 47 people. And these same 47 people were consistent in the workshops. And when they couldn't, they would send long emails or long voicemails apologizing for not being able to attend. And so that to me was, was the biggest win. So I think for the non-traditional partners, I think foundations have been, um, when they, they, foundations fun, but we, you know, I was always intentional about building that closer relationship with foundations. You know, I think because um, I think they play a key role um, with, with funding and also with, with the business community. And so I think that was one of the biggest ones of just having foundations saying, okay, like we, we, we get this, something is wrong, you know? And, 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 and the acknowledgement in itself, I think is a win. It's not the solution yet, but having foundations saying, you know, we get that we have to do something different. But I also learned through the process of foundations, even if CEOs, are on board and the board of directors are not, that can be problematic. The business community, um, I think through this work, um, I was invited to be a board member of the Rose Cedar Valley, which is our, um, our um, chamber of alliance here, which is very non-traditional for public health, you know, but um, again, we've seen with the outbreak um, here um, and, and COVID, how it is important for the business community to have a relationship with public health. Again, we hear about the importance of relationships, one of the main themes of this podcast series on advocacy. This time, Nafisa discusses the integral part that trust plays in relationship building and how to gain trust by simply listening. Now, I think when you go into meetings with an agenda, that's where the problem starts already. I think that... Um, authentic relationships starts with understanding each other. You know, equity, it's the same with equity work. You know, tell me about yourself, tell me where you're from, what you like, because it, it's, um, it's, it's a personal thing. It's not, like I said, it's not like where's something you should, you should, you should learn. Um, you, it, it's not like just a curriculum and you just, you know, try and apply it. Um, but as the person is talking, you learn about their values. And so 
in learning about their values, you can um, uh, understand better the approach to take to bring them to the table. But if you go in with the agenda, there's a lot of assumptions, and 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 you'll be you'll be surprised how quickly, you know, things people get put off by that because they they see through the agenda, you know. So to be honest, I go in with, hey, you know, um, Blackhawk County, Waterloo, Cedar Falls was labeled the worst place for African Americans to live. Like, what's your take on that? Let's have a conversation. I just want to know what where, what's your take, you know? How did you feel about it? And even if some of the responses are not responses that you want to hear, um, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable, you know? I mean, it's, 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 it's that part, for me, it's just been that part of the work where I've been in spaces where, oh my goodness, this is uncomfortable, but I have to zoom in on what the person is saying. And it will also help me determine whether, is this actually the ideal person to be at, at the table or not? I'm very also um, intentional if I do see individuals that can be um, barriers, I don't, I don't spend a lot of energy on that because that will, that, that also can delay the process. So you, you have to be willing to move on and say, okay, this person doesn't recognize that this is a problem and it is what it is, but I have to find somebody that does or put somebody that will um, help me push um, some of the solutions that need to happen. Reverend Mary returns with some extremely important thoughts to consider about maintaining focus despite feeling angry and frustrated. None of the topics that public health will be tackling in the 21st century are easy. They're just undeniably necessary to address. Finding your allies and building your coalition will disperse some of the weight of the burden and, frankly, some of the emotions involved. We are better together. Well, you can get angry. Um but it's like you don't allow it to affect your outward action. But, but to say that I never get angry, clearly, it's almost like daily. And Dr. Tapisa knows because we talk. Um, but then I have to think about, okay, what is the goal? And no matter how angry I might get, I cannot allow that to stop me from reaching that goal. And, and so I get it. I, in fact, I get mad every single day. Sometimes when I think about things, you, uh, it, it just happens. And another emotion, just as, just as danger, dangerous as anger, is you may have an affinity for someone. You may like someone. And maybe they're doing something that is clearly racist. Uh, but you don't want to say anything uh, or you don't want to move forward because you think it might hurt them. That's just as dangerous because it stops you from reaching whatever goal you had set to reach. And so we have to find a way to get around our emotions um, and, and defensiveness. That's another one. Uh, we've got to find a way to get around those. And that's what this coalition building does uh, because people, when they come on board, they signed on board that they know there needs to be changed and that they are 
willing and want to be a part. A final thought from Reverend Mary is that you just have to start somewhere. Think of what your story could be. Once upon a time, you knew no one and you had no influence. Then one day you stepped out of your comfort zone and had a conversation about public health. Then you had another and another. Then from those conversations came relationships with people who were compelled by your conversations. And from those relationships, a coalition was built and then a call to action declared. And from that call to action, change came. That change felt good. And so more conversations came next and more relationships and more coalition-led advocacy until one day you look back and you can marvel at the light you left behind for others to come. As Reverend Mary and Nafisa both said, we have to show the way and then we have to lead the way. Really, seriously, I think we've been sold a bill of goods that Oh, you've got your senator there. You've got your representatives. Are you letting them know what you really think? Many of the people that we're talking about that we have to work with are not within the sphere of influence with many of our legislators. And so I found out that in order to get the grassroots involved, you have to really work with people within their sphere of influence. And then they work with others in their sphere of influence. And then that's where the change comes. Um, I've gone the route of just uh, when I was a quote, uh, nobody, right? And you get in touch with your, you have no influence You have there. But as you work with each group, each person, as you make the friends that Dr. Nafisa was talking about, as you develop the relationships, that is where uh, the change comes. And, uh, and I think she's absolutely right that we have to show the way and then we also have to lead the way. Thank you so much to Reverend Dr. Mary Robinson and Dr. Nafisa Cisse Ebonye for sharing your wisdom and your experiences with us today. I'll end with a quote from Dr. Margaret Mead that I think is fitting for the episode on public health coalitions. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Dr. Mead was an American cultural anthropologist who was notable in the 1960s and 70s, and she was really, really smart. As this podcast closes, so does this four-part series on advocacy. Hannah Schultz, the producer, and I sincerely want to thank you all for listening to this series if you've made it through all four episodes, congratulations. You now have the knowledge you need to get started advocating for your craft alongside the very notable guests we've had today and throughout our series. You'll be in great company and they will absolutely welcome you as an ally. If you haven't heard all four episodes, go back and listen to what you've missed. It's well worth your time. Thank you all for the work you do to promote, improve, and protect the places where people live, learn, work, play, and worship. Thank you so much for being a public healther. I'm Deborah Thompson. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to Sonia Armbruster, Brandon Grimm, Janine Moody, Hannah Schultz, and Kristen Wilson for helping to plan and produce the series. Thank you to Melissa Richland for audio production and support. 
This podcast is supported by a grant from the Health Resources and Services Administration. A transcript and evaluation for this episode is available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.